When we picture the Tudors, I would say that for 99% of us, we immediately conjure up images in our mind which were painted or sketched by Hans Holbein. When we imagine King Henry VIII, all six foot three of him, taking up the entire length and breadth of a canvas, it is Hans Holbein's Henry VIII that we think of. There were, of course, other painters at or around the Tudor court at the time, Lucas Horenbout and Antonis Moore, to name just a couple, but Hans Holbein is unquestionably the most famous and the most influential. To be sketched or painted by Hans Holbein was the Tudor equivalent of being directed by Scorsese. Anyone who was anyone wanted their image to be taken by this Tudor artistic genius, and it is to him that I think we all can agree that we owe a huge debt, for Hans Holbein opened a window into the world of the Tudors. He gave us the ability to look into the faces of the past. From painting Henry VIII, his wives, most infamously Anna of Cleves, and his children, down to members of his court, foreign ambassadors, and much, much more, Hans Holbein's work lets the world see how the Tudor court itself looked. He lifts the veil of time and invites us all to gaze at what once was. With a brand new exhibition of Hans Holbein's work now on display at the Queen's Gallery, Buckingham Palace, there is no more apposite time to look back at the life of this most iconic of artists and discuss some of his most well-known work, the man who gave us the faces of the Tudor court. Welcome back to the Tudor Chest Podcast, episode 13, Hans Holbein, the window into the court of Henry VIII. Last Thursday, I was lucky enough to attend a press screening of the brand new display of Hans Holbein work at Buckingham Palace. When the invitation came through, I very nearly had to decline because it coincided with my grandmother's 100th birthday. Not really an occasion that I could pass up. Thankfully, the exhibition was in the morning and after my parents rang me and said, you don't turn down an invite from the palace, I made things work and went straight from the exhibition to the celebrations of my grandmother's big day. And I was pleased to make it work because the exhibition truly was utterly spectacular. From the moment I walked in, I could see countless pieces sketched, painted and created by Hans Holbein. Works of art I'd only ever seen online or in a book were suddenly before me and it was so thrilling. But it occurred to me that little of the man himself, Hans Holbein the Younger as he was known, is seldom explored. Hans Holbein was born sometime during the winter of 1497 to, as you could probably guess, Hans Holbein the Elder, and what we should assume was his wife. Sadly, no records of Hans Holbein's mother exists. He was born in the Free Imperial City of Augsburg. Free Imperial Cities were a smattering of cities across the Holy Roman Empire which, by and large, were self-governing. Augsburg is now part of Bavaria in southern Germany. His father, Hans Holbein the Elder, was also a painter, as was his uncle Sigmund. It appears that art was therefore something of a family business and skill. For Hans's older brother, Ambrosius, not to be confused with the custard brand Ambrosia, followed in the same career path. 
Hans and his brother began their own career in the world of art when they journeyed to the city of Basel sometime in 1515, where they acted as apprentices to Hans Herbster, Basel's leading painter. Their initial work was not actually in painting, however, but instead worked with Basel-based printers in designing woodcuts, one of which would actually be used for his future first English customer, Thomas More. For Holbein designed a woodcut that was used in More's social satire, Utopia. In addition to woodcuts, Holbein also produced book covers, stained glass, and decorative panels for furniture. The first shot that Hans Holbein and his brother Ambrosius were given with regard to actually drawing came when the preacher and theologian Oswald Myconius invited them to add pen drawings to the margin of a copy of The Praise of Folly by the humanist scholar Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam, which brought them to the attention of the great man, a relationship that would prove to be highly advantageous in time. The sketches Hans created provide the earliest evidence of his own humanist leanings, as well as his clever use of both wit and humour within the work that he created. It was during this time that Lutheranism was also becoming prolific across Basel, and so it is highly likely that Hans came into contact with the new learning as it was then known. Hans had established himself well in the city of Basel and ran a busy workshop of his own. It was also at this time that he met his wife, Elspeth, a widow who was something of a rarity for the 16th century for she held down her own job, running a former husband's tanning business. The couple would have four children, three boys, Philippe, Jacob and Kungold, and a daughter, Katharina. It was in 1523 that Hans Holbein painted his first portraits of Desiderius Erasmus. Erasmus commissioned a series of images which were then to be sent to his friends and acquaintances across Europe, a bit like sending a Christmas card with your own face on. Bit weird. This commission was what put Holbein on the map, for his work was now travelling outside of Basel, and the following year he journeyed to France in the hope of securing further work. Luckily for us Brits, the work Holbein was hoping to achieve in France did not materialise, and so in 1526 he decided to journey across the Channel into England, where, via a recommendation from Erasmus, he came to the attention of Sir Thomas More. At this time, More was still a great statesman and close friend of King Henry VIII, and other notables at court, such as Thomas Wolsey and the Duke of Norfolk. Holbein clearly had high hopes for his time in England, for he commented that the arts are freezing in this part of the world, meaning France, and that he is on his way to England to pick up some angels. With his letter of recommendation from Erasmus in hand, Holbein made his way to Sir Thomas More with the hope of securing his first English commission. Thomas More acknowledged Holbein's arrival into England in a letter that he sent to Erasmus, telling him, Your painter friend, my dear Erasmus, is a wonderful artist. I fear he will not find English soil as rich and fertile as he hoped, but I shall do my best to make sure that it is not completely barren. More clearly held up his promise, for he promptly gave Holbein two commissions. The first was to be a solo portrait of More himself, and the second a much larger group portrait of the whole More family, which was likely intended to hang on the walls of his grand waterside mansion in Chelsea, which later became known as Beaufort House. A large portion of the new Buckingham Palace exhibition actually centres around the individuals featured in More's family portrait. Very sadly, the original painting produced by Holbein was destroyed in a fire in the 18th century. However, Holbein's sketch of the portrait remains, as do the studies of several of the individual subjects which are all on display at the exhibition. These include sketches of Thomas More himself, but as well as his father, his son and his daughters. 
What was very likely an early copy of the full family portrait does, however, remain and survive to this day, produced by Roland Loki in the late 16th century It now hangs at Knotsdale Priory in West Yorkshire. The most famous portrait of Sir Thomas More, painted by Hans Holbein, is now in the Frick collection in New York. And so whilst it isn't on display at Buckingham Palace, the sketch used as its basis is. The finished portrait is honestly a masterpiece and shows just how genius Holbein's grasp of painting truly was. It is clear from the painting that the red sleeves and the black gown worn by Moore were made from velvet, for Holbein masterfully uses depth and shadowing to highlight the natural shifts in colour seen in the velvet. More clever still is the detail in the fur, which sits atop, for Holbein has erased areas of the brown paint to give a sort of natural sheen to the fur and mimic the fluidity of the material as it would have appeared in life. Sir Thomas More's face is quite pinched. He bears the hint of stubble across his chin and his eyes look tired and red around the edges, perhaps a deliberate decision to highlight how hard he worked on behalf of the king. Thomas More clearly introduced Holbein to his friends and acquaintances, for just a year later he was busy at work for Sir Henry Guilford, a prominent courtier as master of the horse and comptroller of the household to King Henry VIII. Guilford ordered a three-quarter length portrait of both himself and his wife Mary, and luckily both the preparatory sketches and the finished portraits have survived to this day. What is fascinating about the finished portraits, and it's something that I hadn't noticed before until I went to the exhibition, is that, that although they are two separate images, when placed together it is clear that they do indeed make a set, for a curtain rail runs along the top of both images, which when put side by side fuses together perfectly, with the couple facing away from each other, Mary on the left and Henry on the right. Some sort of plant is also behind the two sitters, and again, when put side by side, it fuses together nicely. In 1528, Holbein left England for what would turn into a four-year return to Basel, likely necessitated by the fact that in order to retain his Basel-based citizenship, that he could not be out of its shores for more than two years. Equally, it may have been owing to the large-scale breakout of the sweating sickness which was ravaging England at the time. In 1532, he returned to English shores, probably on the basis that an ample array of work was within his grasp. During Holbein's time back in Basel, a burgeoning community of wealthy merchants had been growing in both influence and power within London. That they were the initial drawback into England is proven by the fact that seven of Holbein's first pieces of work upon the return to London were members of the London Steelyard. The London Steelyard was made up of a group of merchants from northern and central Europe who operated out of a steelyard on the north bank of the Thames. Holbein rented a house in nearby Maiden Lane and he chose to portray the merchants in a range of styles. His portrait of George Geese of Ganst, for example, shows the merchants surrounded by exquisitely painted symbols of his trade, of his job. Outside of having their own images captured by Holbein, the group also engaged Holbein to design their pageant arch for Anne Boleyn's coronation procession in May 1533. In my former career, I used to work with a lot of advertising agencies and production companies who would often pitch for our business, bringing in floor plans, designs and so on. And I kind of had this image, I like to imagine the Steelyard merchants were doing much the same thing, getting Holbein to approach them with different designs of arches to honour their, their their new queen and deciding that he'd won the pitch. 
The steelyard merchants ordered portraits of themselves by Holbein as a means of conveying their newfound prosperity and success. It reminds me very much of the Nouveau Riche, who insist on Instagramming every new designer purchase they make. Dolboy Trotter, for example, would definitely have been part of the steelyard merchant crowd wanting a Holbein portrait to adorn his mantelpiece. After the success of his work with the Steelyard Merchants and the display made for Queen Anne Boleyn, Holbein reached the pinnacle of his career, for he came to the attention of King Henry VIII himself. Holbein's return to England in 1532 was at the very moment in which the King's great matter, as it became known, was at its most volatile. Henry VIII's decision to break from his first marriage to Catherine of Aragon and marry Anne Boleyn had been dragging on for six long years, splitting court loyalties down the middle. One man who remained firm in his loyalty to Queen Catherine was Holbein's first English sitter, Sir Thomas More. Despite owing much of his initial success to Thomas More, Holbein was either at odds with the Lord Chancellor's views or simply went into a mode of self-preservation, for he quickly distanced himself from Thomas More, much to the annoyance of Erasmus, who commented that Holbein had deceived those to whom he was recommended. Their annoyance at Holbein effectively jumping ship was likely compounded when the artist was commissioned to take the image of Thomas Cromwell, who became one of his most notable patrons. The portrait of Cromwell is quite unnerving and has done little to alter people's perceptions of Cromwell as an archetypal villain. He appears gravely stern, with small eyes, a large bulbous nose and a pinched mouth. He is relatively plainly dressed, evidence that the image was likely not taken at the height of his powers in the later 1530s, but more likely around 1532. One of the most thrilling recent Tudor artefact discoveries is Cromwell's own Book of Hours, which features in the portrait and is currently on display at Hever Castle, the childhood home of Anne Boleyn, thanks in part to the discovery of the book being the work of Kate McCaffrey, one of Hever's curators. Exactly when Holbein officially became the King's painter is not definitively known, although we know it took place prior to September 1536, for at that time he is mentioned as being in the post by Nicolas Bourbon, a French poet who himself sat for Hans Holbein. As court painter, Holbein received an annual salary of £30, which I know sounds abysmally low, but was average by the standards of the time, but it does appear that he struggled to cope on his earnings, for he regularly had to ask for advances when a new piece of work was commissioned. He was not alone in his capacity as court painter. Lucas Horenbout, as I mentioned earlier, was also working for the king at this time, and was also on a higher salary to boot. It is believed that Holbein's earliest royal sketch is one said to depict Anne Boleyn. Now this sketch is easily one of the most well-known images produced by Holbein, but is undeniably controversial, like most things in Anne Boleyn's life. It is now part of the Royal Collection and is on display as part of the Holbein exhibition at Buckingham Palace. The reason the image courts much discussion is that the sitter looks decidedly unlike other portraits of Henry VIII's most infamous queen. The sitter has quite a prominent double chin and a large nose. She is also depicted in a state of undress, wearing a simple coif on her head and a furred nightgown. Now, a common misconception that people often comment on is the presence of what looks like yellowy blonde hair poking out from below the linen coif on the sitter's head. However, that is more likely to have been part of the headdress itself and is also believed to have been added at a later date. 
The inscription Anna Boleyn Queen in the top left was added by Sir John Cheap, and it is this that convinces many that this truly is an image of the Queen. We also have to factor in that when comparing it against other portraits of Anne Boleyn isn't really a solid argument given that all of the known full portraits of Anne were done long after she died. John Cheek was a patron of Anne Boleyn's. He knew her well. He knew what she looked like well, and so it seems incredibly unlikely that he would have mislabeled her sketch. His inscription came when King Edward VI was on the throne. He was deeply fascinated by the great book of portraits from his own father's reign, and as John Cheek had been such a prominent figure at Henry VIII's court, he was asked by the young king to label all of the sketches. Now, I must admit, I've always maintained that there is no way that that image could be Anne Boleyn. It just didn't fit the bill for me, but I must admit that I have now changed my mind. I was talking at the exhibition last week to Dr Owen Emerson, a great guy who used to be the chief curator of Hever Castle and is a man incredibly well versed in Anne Boleyn portraiture. He assured me that the image is beyond doubt definitely of Anne Boleyn. As the sitter is facing downward, the presence of the, the double chin can kind of be explained. It's also possible that Anne was pregnant at the time of the sketch. Owen believes that it's likely the image was merely a preparatory sketch that would have eventually been made into possibly a more flattering, fully-fledged portrait, and that the sketch was just a rough basis from which Holbein could work. We sort of joked that Anne Boleyn said, you've got 10 minutes, do what you can kind of thing. Equally, it's possible that it was destined to become a miniature made solely for the eyes of the king, hence the state of undress. What is clear is that when compared against the other Holbein sketch, which is said to be Anne Boleyn, held in the British Museum, that there is an undeniable likeness, double chin aside. In addition to the sketches of Anne Boleyn, it's entirely probable that there was, at one time, a true fully-fledged Holbein portrait of Anne Boleyn, which was likely destroyed following her fall in May 1536. Certainly there was a full-length portrait of Anne Boleyn taken from life in circulation as late as 1790, which sadly is now lost. Perhaps it was a Holbein. It is also clear, however, that Holbein worked directly for Anne and her circle beyond just creating portraits. He designed a cup engraved with Anne's device of a falcon standing on roses, as well as jewellery and books connected to her. He also sketched several women in Anne's own entourage, including a well-known sketch which may very well depict her sister-in-law, Jane Parker, the wife of George Boleyn. At the same time, Holbein was working for Thomas Cromwell as he masterminded Henry VIII's Reformation. Cromwell commissioned Holbein to produce reformist and royalist images, including anti-clerical woodcuts and the title pages to Miles Coverdale's English translation of the Bible. In Henry VIII's efforts to market his own newly created status as supreme head of the church in England, he began work on his spectacularly grand Palace of Nonsuch. The palace's name was a pun on the fact that there had been none such like it by the way of grandeur. The park where the palace once stood also happens to be opposite where I grew up. A year after Anne Boleyn's execution, Holbein painted King Henry VIII possibly for the first time, in an image which is easily one of the most recognisable of the king. It shows Henry VIII from the chest up, facing slightly towards the right with a blue background behind. It is the quintessential Henry VIII image, with the customary ginger beard, barrel chest and jaunty feathered cap. 
inlaid with pearls and precious stones. Another of the king's wives that Holbein painted was Jane Seymour, who as mother to the king's much-desired male heir, Edward, ensured that her images survived in all their technicolour glory right up to the present day. Easily the most famous portrait of Jane Seymour, which was painted by Holbein, probably in early 1537, by which time she was pregnant, is now held in Vienna. But the sketch from which it is based is part of the Buckingham Palace exhibition. Jane was also featured in what is known as the Whitehall Mural, an entirely fictitious painting commissioned by Henry VIII, which brings together himself and Jane Seymour in the foreground, with his parents Henry VII and Elizabeth of York in the background. Sadly, the real mural was lost in a fire at the end of the 17th century. Around the same time that Holbein was painting Jane, he had another go at taking the king's likeness, this time in full length, in what is undoubtedly his most famous image and probably the most well-known portrait of Henry VIII ever painted. The king stands facing forward, a colossal figure with an incredibly broad and richly decorated fur-lined box coat, so named because it was quite boxy in shape, over an equally grand doublet and jerkin. On his legs he wears white hose, stockings basically, with garters at the top of the calves to accentuate the curve of the calf muscle, a feature of his anatomy that the king was said to be very proud of, which, if the portrait is accurate, is one of the few things that I think we can say was a positive about the king's appearance, for he does indeed appear to have a very shapely calf muscle, a 16th century Jack Grealish, if you will. After Jane Seymour's death in October 1537, Henry VIII remained a bachelor for roughly two years, his longest stint as a single man. When he decided that he was ready for wife number four, Holbein was brought in to travel across Europe, taking likenesses of some of the continent's most eligible and hopefully pleasing on the eye princesses as potential brides for the much-married English king. It was also at this time that Holbein sketched and later painted the king's infant son, Prince Edward. Holbein presented the king with the finished portrait as a New Year's Day gift in 1539. The portrait now hangs at the National Gallery of Art in Washington DC, although the very basic sketch on which it is based is on display at the Holbein exhibition. What is so extraordinary about the portrait is how richly decorated and frankly grown up the clothing worn by the young prince was. It is in effect a childlike version of what the king himself was wearing. I certainly cannot picture my nephews, Henry and Oliver, ever having the patience at the age of just one to go about in a restrictive bonnet and a caped coat, even if the look was pretty baller. One of the princesses that Holbein painted for the king was Christina of Denmark, Duchess of Milan, a recently widowed 16-year-old who, as the name would suggest, came from the Danish royal family. Holbein's portrait of her is in full length and shows the young girl in rich black velvet, a sign of mourning. A second portrait of Christina, this one in three-quarter length, was also in the king's ownership, but was not painted by Holbein himself. Now either Holbein flattered Christina, or he caught her on a good day, for in the second image her face looks like a slapped ass. This apparently did not put the king off, although Christina herself had no desire to marry Henry VIII, famously saying, If I had two heads, one should be at the king of England's disposal. What a savage queen. Not long afterwards, Holbein travelled to the Duchy of Cleves in northwest Germany, and it was here that he struck gold, or at least that's what everyone thought at the time. He was there to capture the images of the sisters of Wilhelm, Duke of Cleves, Anna and Amalia. Now, contrary to popular belief, Holbein's portraits were not the first images 
of the two young women that Henry VIII had seen. Portraits of the two had made their way to England when a marriage alliance with Cleves was first being mooted. However, it was felt that the artist who had created them was not as trustworthy as good old Master Holbein. The English ambassadors to Cleves had not seen Anna and Amalia in person, and there was a certain amount of concern all round that they might not live up to what was promised. Holbein was thus duly sent to take the likenesses of Anna and Amalia, which the king could therefore be confident depicted their true image. Two images of Anna were taken. One is a three-quarter length portrait, which is the most well-known portrait of her, and the second is a miniature, which is supposedly the one that the king was pleased enough with to authorise the marriage to go ahead. What happened next is, of course, one of the more well-known episodes from Henry VIII's much-covered marital woes, with Hans Holbein inadvertently caught up in the ensuing shitstorm. Upon landing on English soil, Anna of Cleves did not live up to the king's expectations. The idea that she was ugly and that she smelt bad is not contemporary, and nor did the king call her a Flanders mare. However, it does appear that Holbein did nonetheless flatter her image. By painting her facing forward, it cleverly disguised the fact that Anna had quite a prominent nose. The miniature of her also made her skin appear very pale and fresh, almost doll-like, attributes considered desirable at the time. However, in person, she was much more swarthy, perhaps similar in skin tone to her namesake, Anne Boleyn. Now, much of the blame for the king's disillusionment with Anna fell on his chief minister and the architect of the marriage alliance, Thomas Cromwell, and this would be one of the contributing factors that eventually led to Cromwell's downfall. Among the most prominent courtiers who commissioned Holbein to take their likeness were members of the Howard family, a family who were, in many respects, the second family in the kingdom after the Tudors themselves. The head of the family, a total dickwad, Thomas Howard, 3rd Duke of Norfolk, is the sitter of another of Holbein's most well-known pieces of work. Painted in three-quarter length, the Duke appears much broader than his famously small and spare stature. He is cloaked in rich furs and carries the two batons of his office, the white baton of Lord Treasurer and the gold as Earl Marshal of England, a role which saw him oversee many of the major court cases during the reign of Henry VIII, including that which condemned his own niece, Anne Boleyn, to death. Easily one of the least likeable figures from history, Norfolk's portrait is nonetheless an incredible piece of art. Whether Holbein ever painted Norfolk's second niece to reach queenship, Catherine Howard, is disputed. There is a miniature in the royal collection which is on display as part of the exhibition at Buckingham Palace which has long been said to depict Catherine Howard. That the sitter is one of the queens of Henry VIII is convincingly proven by the presence of the jewels that the sitter wears, which we know were in the Queen's collection and feature in Holbein's portrait of Jane Seymour. However, whether the sitter is Catherine Howard specifically cannot be definitively proven and is at best conjecture. There have been recent musings that it may in fact depict Anna of Cleves. Art historian Franny Moyle first made the claim a couple of years ago, citing the fact that the sitter is firstly too old to be the famously teenage Catherine Howard, but also that the face bears a striking resemblance to another portrait of Anna of Cleves in which she is painted in profile. One other tantalising clue that may point to it being Anna is the fact that the miniature was mounted on a particular playing card, the Four of Diamonds, which could signify that it depicts Henry VIII's fourth queen. 
Given Holbein's purchase for mounting miniature portraits on other playing cards to signify the sitter, this does hold weight. For example, his miniature of Cromwell was on an ace of spades, Cromwell being a man who was known for calling a spade a spade. Now, sadly, without fresh evidence, we may never know the absolute truth of who the sitter genuinely is. The miniature is indeed exactly that. It's a miniature. I was actually really shocked when I saw it at the exhibition last week. It really is very small, but nonetheless beautiful and very rich in detail. Holbein's work as a miniaturist is less explored than his larger portraits, which is understandable for the big and imposing portraits of Henry VIII, of Jane Seymour and Thomas Cromwell give us a chance to really dig into the detail, to get up close to what the sitters may have truly looked like. But the miniatures he produced were as equally well executed and often feature lesser-known figures for whom a full-scale portrait was either not painted or deemed unnecessary. The two infant sons of Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, are two such examples. The miniatures of Henry Brandon and Charles Brandon the Younger, they weren't very original with names back then, are amazing pieces of work, depicting the elder brother at five and the younger at three. Holbein also created several pieces of jewellery and metalwork, although sadly none survive into the modern age. Thankfully, the sketches from which they were made do. These include pendants with intertwined letters H and A for Henry and Anne Boleyn, and also H and I, which will have been to represent Jane Seymour. The letter I did not exist as a standalone letter in Tudor England, but was instead used to represent the letter J, often in lowercase. In 1540, Thomas Cromwell finally fell from favour. He was executed in July 1540, on the very same day that Henry VIII married his fifth queen, Catherine Howard, who famously was beheaded herself just 18 months later. Whilst Holbein had managed to avoid getting caught up in the downfalls of his former patrons, Thomas More and Anne Boleyn, the death of his last great patron undoubtedly did damage to his career. Though Holbein retained his position as the king's painter, Thomas Cromwell's death left a gap that no other patron could or would fill. The irony that it was Holbein's portrait of Anna of Cleves being the catalyst for his patron's downfall must surely not have been lost on him. Apart from the routine official duties to the king and nobility, Holbein now occupied himself with further private commissions, turning again to the steelyard merchants, ever eager to have their likenesses taken. Holbein may have visited his wife and children in late 1540 when his leave of absence from Basel expired. Holbein's marriage has remained an intriguing part of his life that a lot of historians and scholars like to examine and many conclude that it would have been an unhappy one given Holbein's extensive stays in England and the fact that he fathered illegitimate children whilst he was living in England. Now this latter point is not particularly strong evidence of major marital woes for it was commonplace for men of the time to take mistresses and whatever the case it is likely that Holbein always supported his wife and children for follow Elspeth Holbein's death in 1549 she was still very well off and had kept many of her husband's fine clothes. Hans Holbein made his short will on the 7th of October 1543 and died not long after at the age of 45. His exact cause of death is unknown but has been speculated as being from the plague. Holbein's will stated that all his goods and even his horse should be sold off to clear his debts. It would appear that like the subject of many of his most famous portraits who often ran up large debts that Holbein himself lived beyond his means. His requests were upheld when John of Antwerp, the subject of several Holbein portraits, legally undertook the process of enacting his last wishes. 
Sadly, the location of Holbein's grave, and thus his remains, is a complete mystery. Following his death, one of his very last commissions, an elaborate salt cellar with an integral clock, yes, you heard that right, a salt cellar with a clock in it, because why not, was presented to Henry VIII as a New Year's gift by Anthony Denny, the last man who had the unenviable task of being the groom of the stool, aka the royal bottom wiper to Henry VIII. It was said of Hans Holbein, quite fairly, that everything began with a drawing. Each of his creations, be it sketch, portrait, wood carving, metalwork, or stained glass, began with a simple piece of parchment and some chalk. And yet those simple tools in the hand of a genius, such as Holbein, gave way to depicting an entire generation of the Tudor court. There were other painters, of course, as I've mentioned, but without Holbein's masterful images, much of Henry VIII's reign and the people who made it so iconic would be lost to us. He gave us a front row seat to the centre of Henry VIII's court, putting faces to names, bringing to life an era of English history quite unlike any other painter in history. Holbein's painted portraits were closely based on his incredible original drawings. He would transfer each drawn sketch to a wooden panel on which the portrait would then be painted with the aid of geometrical instruments. When you zoom in on the larger portraits, such as the one of Jane Seymour, it allows us to see that Holbein recorded the tiniest details, right down to each stitch or fastening on clothes, such as the golden pinheads visible at the sides of the stomacher that Jane Seymour wears. The result of Holbein's work is a brilliant portrait style in which the sitter appears as instantly recognisable and also lifelike. With Holbein, it really feels like we're seeing the real people. We're seeing what he saw. That said, he was not completely adverse to a bit of portrait flattery. He was known for a bit of what we might call 16th century airbrushing or face tuning. But even so, without his work, many of the faces now on display at that new exhibition would have been lost to us. The exhibition at the Queen's Gallery in Buckingham Palace is now open to the general public until the middle of April next year, priced at £19 for an adult ticket. If you're in London or will be soon, then you have to check this exhibition out. It truly is spectacular, filled with the most amazing pieces of art, as well as a few physical artefacts as well, including the well-known bust of a young Henry VIII when he was a boy, and a copy of Thomas More's Utopia. This exhibition is not to be missed. A massive thank you to the Royal Collection Trust for inviting me along. It was just a complete dream come true. And so that brings me to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chess Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. A big thank you to my subscribers who get access to a weekly bonus podcast episode. To access this, then please head to my Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest, or check out the Tudor Chess Podcast on Apple Podcasts from where you can subscribe. Next week, I'm going to be looking at the life of one of the most fascinating but overlooked figures from Tudor England, Ursula Pole, Baroness Stafford, the one and only daughter of Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury, who despite being easily the least covered of Margaret Pole's children, was the one whose descendants had the scope and the capacity to honour their grandmother, Margaret Pole. Thank you again for all of your support of the Tudor chest, and speak soon.